are listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. and welcome to episode 20 of Footprints on Our Hearts. Today I've got a bit of a longer interview than normal. I was having a really great chat with my guest Carl um, when I was recording this and I didn't really want to cut it short because he's got some really great things to say. So um, I hope you'll forgive me for that and enjoy the additional length of this week's interview. Carl is a husband, a father and an obstetrician. So He kind of comes at the topic of baby loss from a couple of different angles. And Carl and his wife have been unfortunate enough to experience uh, six miscarriages to date. Um, The latest one, I think, was only last year. Um, They also have two living children. And I really have to applaud Carl for being so open and honest on the podcast not just talking about his experience of loss and the incredibly difficult journey him and his wife have gone through, but also his growing acceptance of the emotional side of miscarriage and how it took him five losses and getting on for nine years to become the father and husband he wanted to be. We talk about um, the impact of recurrent loss and a busy career on his marriage how his experience of loss fuels his passion for becoming a better doctor and helping others um, through their losses and helping them bring their children into the world. And he's quite open about how his view of miscarriage has changed over the years from perhaps quite a, a rational and, and clinical, almost a scientific view of you know, this is this is something you go through, you get on with it, you try again, to actually understanding and accepting his own grief and his wife's grief each time they have lost a baby. We do also deviate slightly at the end to talk about ultramarathons and endurance events. Um, and I love Carl's description of suffering and how suffering through these endurance events have really helped him to kind of understand um, and accept suffering through loss. And there were so many great quotes um, from this article, from this interview, sorry, which uh, some of which I will share on Instagram over the coming weeks. But I think one of them really stuck with me. And that was, If you are going to go through trauma, the fact that you can hurt means that it mattered. And I obviously speak as a woman, so I don't have a male perspective on this. But I think that if there are dads who are listening to this, I think perhaps some of you might be able to relate to Carl's experience of pushing down that grief and hurt for a long period, for whatever reason, whether it's to support your partner or your wife, or because, you know, you feel that that's not something, that's not an emotion that you should feel. But actually, all our losses, at whatever stage of pregnancy, 
they all matter and learning to kind of accept and come to terms with that hurt and and kind of feel those feelings I guess is is certainly part of Carl's journey but I'm going to shut up now and (laughs) and let him tell it so much better than I can in his own words so I hope you enjoy this week's interview as ever if you enjoy the podcast I'd really appreciate a review or rating on iTunes or your podcast app. And please do share it with anyone who you think might find it useful. Today, I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Carl, a father, obstetrician and endurance athlete. Welcome to the podcast, Carl. And could you start by perhaps just briefly introducing your family? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much for having me and giving us this opportunity to share our story. Um, So uh, as a kind of brief summary of who we are, I'm Carl. I'm the dad of the family. Um, My wife is Emma, who is um, a teacher by trade. Um, She also does her own kind of fundraising things and um, has been involved with um, sort of Great North Run and, and a few other bits and pieces. And then we've got um, two uh, children, we've got a seven-year-old who's Elijah and a two-and-a-half coming on 14-year-old called Ariella McPherson. <laughs> well, she definitely sounds like a character already. Oh, she is. With a lot of my guests, we start by talking about the the innocence and naivety of our first pregnancies. But as a doctor and specifically an obstetrician, you must have had quite a good awareness of baby loss and how common it is before you even started that journey, albeit in a professional context rather than a personal context. So was miscarriage and baby loss something that crossed your mind when you and your wife first started trying for a baby? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, So when we um, first started, um, I think we had both kind of come at it from a very heavily science-based sort of perspective of understanding that, that, you know, it doesn't always work out. It might take a little while for, you know, for fertility once you come off the contraceptive pill and this kind of thing. And so... I guess in a way, all of that information made us um, blasé to the emotional side of it because we had that kind of scientific sort of background to it, which I think in a, in a roundabout way was um, was a real problem to us in the long run for the story that we've had. Um, because when you when you understand the facts and figures behind something, the bit that you never really fully understand is the... Um, emotion that's caught up with you know the numbers mm, for sure and did you manage to get pregnant fairly quickly did it take you guys a while yeah so our first pregnancy was a kind of planned unplanned scenario um we um so we had a bit of a whirlwind romance we'd um met in the December of two, late December 2009, um, we were then in the situation where my job was going to change geography by quite some distance. I was um, living kind of on the outskirts of London 
in Surrey and my wife was at the time living in Oxford but um, commuting to Reading for work and we I think by the February I found out that my job was going to move to Glasgow um, and so she kind of very hastily <laughs> uh, thankfully uh, made the choice to to sort of drop her job and and to move with me so by the by the July we were moving in to Glasgow together we were engaged by the following October um and then we were due to get married the uh, sort of you know 11 months later in the in the September um but again because we were kind of a little bit dare I say blasé about the whole notion of coming off of contraception and you know when you can expect to kind of have a regular cycle and, and all of those kind of things um, because we knew we wanted to start trying for a family pretty much from the point that we were married we actually came off contraception a couple of months early um, which <laughs> resulted in the pregnancy <laughs> so yeah no fertility issues with that one and what happened with that how did that first pregnancy go um, so that was the beginning of our lost journey. Um, we lost that baby at um, somewhere between five and six weeks, I think, um, going by what we saw by scan and, and that sort of thing. Um, we don't really, unfortunately, with earlier losses, you get less of a kind of clear idea of, you know, what at what stage things stopped and when you were pregnant versus when you were not and, and this sort of thing. Um, but that loss unfortunately coincided, A, with a professional exam for me work-wise, and B, about three weeks before our wedding day. Um, um, and I think, and this is what I was kind of referring to before about knowing the figures and knowing the science and kind of, I don't know, kind of reassuring yourself from a, from what you know versus what you feel so at the time there wasn't a huge amount of um space or emotion kind of attached to that loss and, and there was a huge part of me that said you know you know the figures you know the facts and you know the way that 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 life is you can't guarantee any one outcome for any one person at any one time you know there is a one in four out there why why can't it be you sort of thing um and because of the whole thing of preparing for a wedding and this and that and the other, um, and also going through some uh, relatively challenging um, sort of times with work, with the exam that was now being postponed, and um, I think I'd, I'd moved job maybe um, six weeks before that, because mm -hmm. the way that medicine works um, when you're training, you're often on a rotation, and so you move geographical location every every year or so um in my instance anyway so it, it kind of got swept under the carpet as one of those things don't get too hung up on it it's life it happens and you'll be fine and was that how emma felt about it as well um no is the short answer um i think it it um I think it had a much bigger impact on her. Um, even even now, she will still get sad um, in sort of early April when that baby should have basically been due. Um, 
and it often only lasts a day or two, but she remembers the due date, whereas, rightly or wrongly at the time, my opinion was that, you know, if this pregnancy hasn't amounted to anything, then I shouldn't really attach any emotion to it, um, which you'll hear that maybe that's not my stance today on, on pregnancy and pregnancy loss, but mm-hmm. um, it certainly at the time felt like the logical um, perspective to have. And I don't think that's that's an uncommon perspective. Um, and I think that's a perspective that, you know, particularly people who perhaps haven't suffered a loss would view something, perhaps something as early and early as loss as that, that, you know, that might be their outlook as perspective on what has happened. And did you share that news at all with family and friends or did you just keep it to yourselves? Um, yeah, so at the time we were like super excited and it was all kind of tied into the getting married thing. So yeah, nearest and dearest definitely knew and were immediately crestfallen. And, um, uh, you know, as I think a lot of people find as the experience around pregnancy loss, no one really knew what to say to us. Um, no one really knew how to be there for us. And, you know, you'd often get, um, not necessarily from, from, family but certainly from friends you'd get things said sort of along the lines of well you can fall pregnant or you know you're not infertile um and this sort of thing which at the time was of no reassurance at all but it certainly didn't um it didn't cause any any grief or friction it was just kind of one of those things that you just accepted that this is this is part of how other people talk about this if they ever talk about it Mm. And that that's what's considered normal. So you went on to get pregnant again with your son, Elijah. Did yeah. your experience of that miscarriage um, and Emma's feelings around it and your feelings around it heighten your anxiety during that pregnancy? How, how did that go for you both? Um, for me, yeah, so again, um, we've always sat on a slightly different end of the spectrum um, between us when it comes to these kind of matters. For me, I was still very much heavily into that kind of, dare I say, medical mindset of that was the one in four, you know, when I'm at work, it's unusual for me to come across a woman that hasn't had any losses. It's more common that, you know, if they've got a few children, there's at least one loss in the mix. Um, and so, it was completely logical to me at that point that his pregnancy should work out. Um, my wife, I think, suffered a lot more from the kind of anxiety perspective because um, it took her six months to fall pregnant after after our first loss. And she'd convinced herself that, um, that the miscarriage was her only opportunity to have a child at various points um, or that some catastrophe would happen. And um, I guess, again, knowing what I do for a job um, kind of brought some weird, irrational fears um, into the foreground for her. So um, she was particularly fixated on on a particular um, abnormality that can happen to pregnancies and normally happens kind of one in a thousand or less. But she was absolutely convinced that, you know, this was going to affect our baby. Um Whereas I, I, I genuinely didn't have any of that. I was a lot more, um, a lot more sanguine about stuff, and a lot more kind of 
as I felt, a lot more logical and a lot more circumspect. And I don't, I don't want to put words into your mouth here, so do disagree with me um, if, if you don't agree. But was there a kind of a sense or a feeling perhaps that once Elijah arrived, you've, you've kind of had your one in four, you've had your, your bad experience, your experience of loss, and now you've got your son and it, you know, things should be plain sailing from here on in? Oh, I mean, I absolutely took the whole pregnancy journey for granted. Um, I'd be the first to uh, to acknowledge and admit that um, that you know I, I took it for granted that that things would work out for him. I took it for granted that subsequent pregnancies, you know, by the law of math, would not be affected by miscarriage unless we were silly enough to have more than four pregnancies. Because, of course, maths and science and logic always wins out. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how life, life has a way of teaching you certain lessons. <laughs> and I certainly feel like I found this one out the hard way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I do, I mean, I do think, you know, because people have different personalities and different brains, don't they? And like, for, for example, my, my dad is a very logical, he's an engineer, he's a very kind of logical, right-brained, I guess, person. Um, and you know, I'm I'm sort of more on the left side, and you de- you definitely do think about things in different ways, and I guess rationalise things in different ways as well. Um, so I do think that's quite quite natural. Yeah, and I think it was also a bit of a defence mechanism for myself. Um, I, I felt that at the time, I felt that it was um, it was reasonable to be pretty numb to the whole event because I wasn't going to be here again and I didn't really need to um I didn't really need to sit in it if you know what I mean I didn't I didn't mm-hmm. need to stew over the the kind of pain and the grief I could just you know rub your knee when you bang your shin and and and, and walk on sort of thing yeah I guess you did you didn't you felt like you didn't need to learn how to deal with it because it wasn't on the horizon to happen again. But as many parents do, you decided that you'd like Elijah to have a sibling. And unfortunately, like some parents, that wasn't quite as straightforward or simple as it sounds. Could you tell us a bit about the next few years and what you and Emma went through during that time? Yeah, so um, the next kind of sequence is a little bit of a blur if I if I'm honest. Um because it was I I'd I'd really kind of built up mentally my ivory tower. Um I was completely immune to um the notion that that, that there could be a problem for the future, that there would be anything wrong. We were young, fit, healthy. Um, you know, my wife used to um do boxing and kickboxing and I was you know cycling relatively recreationally in comparison to what I do now but at the time I'd absolutely convinced myself that that there shouldn't be another problem um we started trying for baby two when Elijah was about 15 months old I think um and again fell pregnant reasonably quickly I think it was inside three months um and that pregnancy was a really swift miscarriage. Um, you know, it was kind of pregnancy was here one minute, gone the next sort of thing. 
uh, again, around that kind of five to six week window. Uh, I have this haunting memory of my wife sat on the toilet kind of miscarrying, uh, asking me why, why would this happen again? And that was the first point that I kind of started to draw some blanks. That was the first point that my mental defenses kind of took a beating that I didn't really know how to respond to. Because I, I realized in that moment, I had no answer. It was easy to write off the first one. It was easy to ignore the first one in many ways, because as I say, the science tells you, you're not special. It could happen to you. It's the way of the world. Um, and the second time, you, you, you want to believe that. Um, but here you are. You're, you're, you're sat in the middle of the loss. Um, and, you know, it is a pretty horrible event for all of us. Because um, she desperately wanted to cling on. Um, I did too. But mm-hmm. um, knowing the pain that she was going through and emotionally just kind of it, it tore me up in, in all kinds of ways. The third, so by that point, we're now, you know, one miscarriage, one successful birth, one miscarriage. And I knew full well that no one's going to kind of pay any attention to us from a medical perspective or a kind of support perspective. And in truth, at that point, I wouldn't have necessarily thought that it was reasonable to expect anything on that front. I just thought, well, hey ho, this is this is your portion. This is this is the way it is this time, and you know, deal with it, kind of thing. But slowly, slowly, that that kind of tough veneer was just being shattered over and over again. So the third miscarriage was a really tricky one. Um, in the sense that for the first time, um, Emma didn't actually spontaneously miscarry herself. Um, we'd had a couple of scans. We knew that things weren't going well. Um, we it, it had always been the same picture of um, of our losses, that kind of five to six week window that, that doesn't really go anywhere. Um, and yet it took more than a month um, for that story to conclude, um, the pregnancy just kind of was stuck in the womb. The miscarriage wasn't really happening the way that we'd anticipated. Eventually, um, she got quite ill. Um, she developed an infection in the womb, and so she had to have um, surgery. And it was always her kind of turn of phrase that she didn't want the pregnancy taken away from her, um, which I found super hard and super emotionally charged because obviously the the doctor in me is saying, look, this is, nothing's being taken away from you. It's lost. It's just not leaving. Um, and yet, again, the, the difference between the way we see things um, was kind of evident. Um, and I remember she, I remember kind of seeing her go off for her general anesthetic for this procedure. Um, you know, tears in her eyes and this kind of resignment um, mm-hmm. that, again, you know, thinking about the strong man syndrome 
uh, there were more than chinks in the armor by this point. Uh, you know, I was walking around with duct tape, <laughs> if you want to <laughs> think of it in a, in a visual sense. Um, yeah, that's quite a good um, visual metaphor, actually. <laughs> yeah. Because duct tape's strong, but, you know, it does, it does come off. <laughs> and it's also not waterproof. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the problem with tears. Tears will get through anything. Um, and I, to this day, I don't know that I've ever cried about any of our losses. Um, but knowing that my wife was crying was the bit that really tore me up. Um, knowing mm-hmm. how much she wanted this second pregnancy and how, and how, in a roundabout way, we knew what we were missing. We had this growing young man who was exploring the world, finding his own interests, you know, walking. Um. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think perhaps I can kind of understand where she's coming from a bit in terms of what she said, because there's a sense of control as well, I guess, isn't there? And, you know, when you have a, a baby inside, I think there is a difference between either giving birth to that baby or, you know, perhaps have it naturally miscarrying and I guess having it removed from your womb for a lot of people. So I think I can see where she, maybe where she's coming from a bit with that. But it must have been incredibly difficult for you both knowing that that pregnancy wasn't wasn't going anywhere because I think you said you sort of had scans so you knew the pregnancy wasn't progressing so you were effectively in this waiting period waiting for this miscarriage to happen and that emotionally that must have been incredibly difficult um it was but um that probably wasn't the most um difficult place for us in terms of all of our losses because whilst that single event was pretty brutal um the story of becoming a couple that were going to meet that kind of clinical bracket of recurrent miscarriage was looming pretty large on the horizon and it's a bit like i i i liken it to um to being on a really scary roller coaster in the sense that you get on and it's supposed to be fun like you're supposed to be enjoying this whole process of having children expanding your family and everything else you strap up you think you're safe you're in this car and it starts moving um and very quickly you realize that although it's moving you have zero control of speed direction time balance place what's up what's down you're just on the ride um and even if you see the roller coaster tipping down into a deep dark black hole you're not really able to get off. Um, and I think, so So to kind of catch up a little bit, um, effectively what happened, we moved house, miscarriage number four happened. And in a way, um, we were kind of looking forward to it because um, we knew there was a problem by that point. There was, there was no illusion. Um, as part of the second miscarriage, Emma had been, um, she'd been recruited to a research study trying to figure out if um, thyroid antibodies had anything to do with recurring losses. And she'd met the criteria to enter. She'd been randomized to either receive some thyroxine or not because they'd found that she had this 
antibody in her bloodstream that meant that at some point she was going to develop sort of an underactive thyroid and we miscarried on on the trial um so that was that process of that um third miscarriage which I kind of just remembered but the but the sort of third consecutive miscarriage mm-hmm. um we kind of look forward to from the perspective of right well maybe we'll get some investigations maybe we'll get some answers maybe we'll get some help and in fact in some ways that was the that was the it was it was nearly the worst miscarriage um it's kind of difficult to grade them on a badness scale they all have their own sort of little um events attached to them that kind of give them a little meaning but um at the time i was working in a research job and i was super super busy um so much so that um i wasn't really there for miscarriage four and miscarriage five um i think between the two of them i had a single day off work what made it worse is that i hadn't been around so much that i as a quote unquote doctor hadn't realized that um all the time i was developed full sort of clinical hypothyroidism and the gps were unwilling to give her a dose of thyroxine that made her asymptomatic so she was kind of walking around with um really quite high um or low levels of thyroxine in her bloodstream um could, could you just tell us a bit about what that what that means from a, you know as a, a lay person <laughs> Yeah. So um, to put it in a nutshell, recurrent miscarriage is kind of classified by women who have three or more consecutive miscarriages. Of those women, about half will find a reason why they have um, their losses and half won't. Um, And one of the kind of controversies in medicine is whether um, recurrent miscarriage can be associated with the antibodies. So the kind of self-facing um, parts of our immune system that are targeted against the um, the thyroid. Um, so what ends up happening is that um, some people think that by having these antibodies or by having an underactive thyroid overall, that this increases a woman's chance of having a pregnancy loss because the, the thyroxine is a essential hormone we all have it in our bloodstream whether whether we're underactive or we're sort of you know normal uh, for want of a better phrase um because you can't really live without it it, it regulates pretty much all of our a, a lot of our sort of cellular a lot of our function of our cells and that sort of thing it helps us with energy levels and all of these kind of things it's it's really really vital so even if you have an underactive thyroid normally you'll you'll receive sort of a tablet that gives you back that thyroxine um hormone otherwise you kind of run into problems over time and in any case that was the category that emma was in she um had the antibody she had the full deal of um underactive thyroid and she wasn't really getting adequate replacement and to make matters worse she'd gone to the gp explaining that her pregnancy losses were associated with this condition um and that she was newly pregnant and could they just increase the dose by a small amount which is kind of standard practice um and unfortunately 
where we were, the GP kind of said, look, you know what you're facing. If you have a miscarriage, you already know what to deal with or how to deal with it, sorry. Which to this day crushes me. Um, mostly because in any other life circumstance, I would have probably played the role of Papa Bear slash irate lion and gone mm -hmm. and, you know, had a few choice yeah. words. <laughs> and we'd have been walking away with the thyroxine that we needed. But as I say, I was so caught up with this with this particular job and time frame professionally, I missed it. Um, and that baby got to seven weeks and we lost it on Boxing Day. Mm -hmm. um, and it had a heartbeat and I'd seen it alive. You know, we'd convinced ourselves that once we got to the point where we had a heartbeat, that we'd be okay. Because all the other losses hadn't really been, you know, you, you didn't really see anything that you could mm -hmm. readily call a, a, a baby or a pregnancy other than the kind of machinery. Um, and then here we were with this thing in our hand that um, was a baby. And and I, I, I don't know that there's a word that summarizes the feeling of just loss of, because, you know, I, I don't want to sound rich here. There are plenty of people who've been listening to this who've never had the experience of having one child, let alone or, or, or worse yet, one successful pregnancy or one pregnancy even to, to kind of make contrast with. Um, but I would hand on heart say that there, there was nothing that compared to that feeling that, that day, um, you know, nothing. And I was going to ask, because a lot of what we talk about on this show is grief. Um, and that's often in the context because a lot of the people I've interviewed have been, had children who were stillborn or died shortly after birth. But I imagine the sort of experience of grief associated with recurrent miscarriage must be quite different. And by this stage, this is your, you know, your fourth baby, which which you've both lost and, and your third in a row, I think. Um, yeah. What were you both feeling at this point? Were you despairing of ever being able to give Elijah a sibling? Or was um, this sort of... I, that thought was starting to creep in by that point. But um, I think what was probably more telling was the effect that it was having on us separately, but also together as a, as a couple. Mm -hmm. um, there was this kind of um, big thing that was in the background that we never really spoke about. Uh, bless my wife, she never really turned around and kind of said to me, you weren't there for me, but she didn't need to say it. Mm -hmm. I knew it. Um, my son never really needed to say to me, where have you been, daddy? It was more the case that when I was home, he was surprised. He thought that I was still living in Scotland because at this point we'd moved for this research job to sort of nearer London. Um, and he genuinely, for most of the time we were there, believed that I was still in Scotland, but used to come and pay him a visit. Um, and so he would, whenever I did lay eyes on him, he would actually say that to me. Oh, thank you for coming to visit me today, Daddy. And I'm like, oh. I do live here. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's just, yeah, that's I come in three days a week, if you're lucky. 
under the cover of night and, I'll, and I'm gone again by five o'clock in the morning to make my train. So, you know, if you're a three-year-old, mm. you don't live in my house. And, and that that's just a matter of fact. And that, I mean, part of that is is the life of a doctor. And I imagine particularly in London, because you have long commutes at either end as well. So you have long shifts, long commutes, and it, it does kind of impact on your family life. Yeah, it was, a, as I say, it was a particularly bad time on a, mm. on a lot of fronts. Um, not least because so much of our journey had, in my mind, still lent on that scientific understanding, had lent on the, right, okay, when we get to three consecutive miscarriages, we'll get help, we'll have an answer, we'll get investigations. And even if those investigations show us nothing, we'll know that the next time we'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then neither of those things was true <laughs> because, um, you know, we had a series of investigations that were um, by the book, they were okay. Um, there was certainly no excellence in that process and I don't think I'm being unfair in saying that um, and essentially what then came to pass was that when we had the fifth miscarriage um, the doctor that was looking after my wife discharged her and I was like oh wait hang on what how does pardon <laughs> what do you mean discharged you haven't done your job we haven't walked away with the baby yeah um, and he was like well I've, I've, I've done what's meant to be done it's up to you um and 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 that was that was the that was the final straw for me that 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 broke me in a way that I have never fully recovered from um not in a in a grief way in a kind of you know let's be honest and say that sometimes you feel that um the help that's out there may not always be as helpful as it sounds or seems um but this is the first time really that i genuinely felt helpless um and you know i i was at the point of trawling the internet for whatever solutions I thought might be out there or some other clinician that we could maybe pay for to see privately. Um, I remember having this really vivid conversation with a work colleague about international adoption. Um, And for the first time, I kind of, I, I had to swallow that pill. I was like, well, if you want a sibling for your child, maybe, maybe, this is going to be it. Maybe it's not going to be yours in the Mm. sense of, you know, the biology, but it can be yours in the sense of the emotion and the love. And, and, and I didn't know it yet, but that was, that was the seed that was being kind of sown in amongst all the rubble that was helping me to, to now lose this whole notion of, I can use my science or my scientific knowledge as, as my defense to this, or, I, you know, I can, I can brave it out or I can tough it out or I can, you know, just be ambivalent and, and, and it'll be all right. Um, Cause no one had any answers. No one, not me, 
no medicine. You know, I'm, I'm a I'm a religious person myself. Well, I say religious, I don't really mean that, but you know, I have a faith system myself. Um, and and even there, I, I was drawing blanks. And worse yet, um, I didn't really know that this was even possible. You know, I I didn't know that this level of suffering was a was a was a possibility. And do you feel that because you were, you know, you were a doctor and you had this scientific background. And, you know, I know often lay people, as lay people, we we expect doctors to have all the answers sometimes. And, and as a doctor, you, you know, you probably already knew that, you know, that that's not always the case. And doctors don't know everything <laughs> as much as people think. But because of, you know, your particular experience and, and sort of speciality in that, how... Do you think that played into your grief? And equally, did your personal experiences affect your work during that time or change your perceptions or or perhaps behavior towards other families who had also suffered losses? Um, in some ways, it affected my work. Um, I ended up walking out on the research job. Uh, it's probably the first time I'm going to say that out loud and in public. Um, but I kind of got to a point where it was pursue this particular goal, um, or be married, mm-hmm. um, for want of a better phrase. Um, and I've always been pretty career focused and determined. And that was, I, again, this is what I mean when I say, I, I, I talk about the seed of who my new personality has become kind of coming from that moment or coming from that sequence of events because um, it, it did it affect my ability to give care to the women in front of me absolutely not um, and if anything it made me more passionate to give mm-hmm. them what I couldn't give my own home which was a successful pregnancy so in some ways it kind of lit a fire in me from a sort of passion towards clinical work and to um seeing things from a slightly different light it stopped being about the numbers and it started being about this person in front of me this moment what risks are there in front of them and how can i minimize them i can't take them away but how can i how can i how can i be a realistic force for good in their world um which sounds ridiculous because clearly that should have happened at medical school, and it did. But it just took on a deeper meaning. It mm-hmm. took on um, it took on a life of its own, really. Um, you know, even to where I work currently, there is this kind of loose joke that um, I like to scan all the pregnant women, <laughs> <laughs> and that's not really true anymore. It, it's it's that it's that seed of passion that has hopefully started to bear fruit in the sense that I see myself as having been given a sort of gift or a talent or whatever, a skill. Um, I don't think it's particularly that I'm clever or, or anything else. I just think I've been allowed to be useful. Um, and so in being allowed to be useful, I'm going to be useful with it. 
So, um, you know, so when, when there are situations where there's a question of, is my baby growing? Is my baby moving? Is my baby alive? For, particularly for the early pregnancies and stuff. Uh, I think, I think without the losses, maybe, just maybe, I might have been slightly less passionate. Mm -hmm. Um, You'll never know. I never know. But I certainly know that there's that kind of driving force within me that come what may, I can use the skills that I have to, to give answers. And I can use the skills that I have to do my best to read the future and, and, and figure out where things are headed and how we can how we can manipulate the timeline to get the outcome that everyone's looking for. Because um, that's always the, that's always the rub in our job. You don't, you don't ever get to see the ending and then guess what the right course of action in the right mm-hmm. time frame would have been. You've got your findings, you've got your instinct, and then you've got whatever happens off the back of those two things. Um, which is when you've been the person who's been the wrong end of it five times over, six times over, um, that starts to really, really, really make a difference internally. Yeah. And I think loss does change you in so many ways. And sometimes you're not even aware of, of those changes and how they make you, I guess, grow or you know, change as a person. Um, so by this point, you've um, had five made babies that you didn't get to to meet, and you have your son Elijah. And then you managed to get pregnant with your daughter Ariella. Yes, the lion. That's what her, her name. Yeah, so her name translates to Lion of God, and she's got a. If you'll ever see her, she's got a big mane of hair, <laughs> and she can roar. <laughs> so yeah, she was. Uh, she certainly embodies her name. Oh, it's a beautiful name. And was was there any point during Emma's pregnancy with her that you were able to relax and think, "Yes, nope. we're going to bring nope. this baby home." No, nope. <laughs> no, nope. not at all. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so Ariella was conceived and born in Scotland. So, if you'll kind of infer from the timeline, we've jumped back to the west of mm-hmm. Scotland. Um, at the time, I was, I was still living a ridiculous distance from where I was working. It was kind of an hour and a half each way. And again, bless my poor wife. Um, I made out like it was to placate her anxieties. It totally wasn't. It was, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I scanned her pretty much every two weeks until she got to twenty-eight weeks or something like that. And so she used to. What ended up happening was either she'd take the train to come to my workplace for me to scan her because it was the only place I had access to a machine, or I would cycle to work and she'd come and pick me up, put the bike in the back of the car, and and, and drive me home. Um, in any case, it was grossly, grossly, grossly um, sort of uh, inconvenient to her. Um, I think she was a lot more reassured. And I was like, no, 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 time to check. <laughs> like, really, is it? I think things are fine. I was like, no, 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 you need to come, up, come down sort of thing. Uh, and then the kicker was 
at 20 weeks, I found a problem. Uh, Again, this is, this is a story that most people don't know. Um, So at 20 weeks, because as I said, I've developed a little bit of a sick spidey sense for trouble because I look for Mm -hmm. everything. Um, (laughs) And again, that's kind of the running joke at work is that, you know, if you've had an assessment from me, it will be thorough. <laughs> and yeah, I'd found that there was basically a problem to the blood flow to the womb, uh, which completely threw me for a loop. Not me so much her, because she was like, oh, what does this mean? And I was like, well, it'd probably be fine, but uh, all those scans that you're getting are kind of worth it. <laughs> <laughs> and we should keep doing that. Um, and eventually she got so sick of me that she... Um, contacted a, a doctor that I'm um, very close to um, that was about half the distance from our house, <laughs> I might add. Um, and so she used to go to her for her scan on a monthly basis, not on my fortnightly schedule that I'd earmarked for, for her whole pregnancy. Um, and Ariella grew like a trooper and everyone laughed at me and said, oh, this is, you know, nonsense or whatever. This kind of red herring that I found in the ether somewhere, but they, they, they were kind, they kind of placated me. They knew that I was a bit of a head case. Uh, and then it came to labor and Ariella got really distressed really early on for no good reason. So much so that we almost had a cesarean section. Um, but as things would happen, by the point that we got into theater, um, Emma was already ready to have the baby vaginally, and so she was born by forceps, which for anyone who's involved in pregnancy care, you'll know that for a second-time mum to talk their way into forceps, having given birth naturally under their own steam the first time means that you've really misbehaved. <laughs> um, so, um, so then when Ariella was born, um, because they know me there and they know what I'm like and the fact that I'm a little bit pushy, um, <laughs> They decided, or they told us anyway, that the placenta looked really unusual, uh, but that they weren't going to show me. Um, They kind of described it instead, and they basically said that a significant portion of the placenta had died potentially a long time ago because it was white and had no blood flow within it at all. Um, And the placenta, the afterbirth, should look like liver. Mm -hmm. It should be rich and sort of reddish brown and sort of meaty looking um and i kind of felt a little bit like well i told you so i told you there'd be a problem (laughs) (laughs) that's why we were having all those (laughs) plans yeah exactly so i i kind of felt not i felt like for the first time that the skills that i've acquired over the last decade or whatever it is or whatever it had been by that point actually made a difference in my own home um, and in some ways that was kind of a completing of my own loop round from, oh, I should know about this. I know I'm just a sufferer like everyone else to, well, I might be, but actually I can still have a useful impact here. Mm-hmm. Um, for me as an individual, I, I fully accept that there are so many dads that are unfortunately by definition passive in the process and they just, get to see the hurt uh, for all of those kind of men and for all those instances whoever's listening 
can I just for a quick second reassure that there is nothing further from the truth. Our wives need us just like we need them. Um, and for anyone who feels disempowered, I just really want to make clear that you might not have power to change the outcome, but my God, can you be present? Mm-hmm. Um, which was the bit that I'd missed five times over. Um, yeah. Um, and it must have been amazing to finally have her with you. But your story doesn't quite end there because despite despite Ariella arriving into the world, unfortunately, you've since suffered a sixth miscarriage. Yeah, um, probably that is my, that miscarriage is probably my biggest claim to fame. Um because for the first time, it wasn't about the numbers. It wasn't about the science. It wasn't about the bravado. It was about being a parent. Um, suffering successfully, if ever such a thing mm-hmm. should exist. Um, because to give you a, a, a rundown of this story, um, both I and my wife are relatively stubborn as far as human beings are concerned. I think you'd have to be to have as many pregnancies as we've had. Uh, that may be an understatement. <laughs> but my wife has always seen it that she wanted to have three children and a problem like recurrent miscarriage wasn't really going to get in her way. <laughs> uh, so here we are. Ariella's that year and a half at this point or something like that. Bearing in mind, three days after she was born, we were taking a walk together, our first outdoor walk with the baby. Um, And she kind of looked into the pram with this misty look in her eyes. And she turned around to me and she said, this isn't my last baby. And and I could have passed out. Um, (laughs) That's quite quick for the the rose-tinted specs to come back on. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't. 100% 100% on board, but... Yeah, I was kind of hoping that, you know, a few sleepless nights into the affair and we'd maybe just kind of settle out a little and accept our portion. Um, I think sometimes I feel like... Um, I feel like a bit of a criminal in this scenario because as much as we've had our losses and things, whether I like it or not, we still have two mm. children that we love and adore and you know they're they're an integral part to, of, of of who we are and, and just knowing that there are people out there who that's not their situation that's not their story um makes me feel guilty if I wasn't satisfied mm-hmm. um I don't, I, I don't know how else to kind of phrase that um but anyway so the plan was baby three Rightly or wrongly. Um, and we found ourselves pregnant, strongly positive. We got to kind of seven weeks. There was a heartbeat. Um, we thought we were okay. And this, um, by the way, all kind of coincides with um, a triathlon I was meant to be doing. So one of the things that has come out of this to me is that um, I talk about suffering successfully um and i've kind of found that sometimes other people find it hard to empathize with emotional pain but i think the one thing that we all have as a kind of 
universal experience as human beings is physical pain. Um, and so I kind of have hammered out a bit of a um, routine for myself in that I throw myself wholeheartedly at these kind of sporting events and try to um, get better at suffering, uh, for want of a better phrase. Um, and we'll come on, we'll come on to talk about that in just a minute, but because I, I want to spend yeah. some time on that at the end. But let's maybe first let's just go back to this this last experience yeah, yeah. you had. So, yeah. So anyway, um, the one thing that's been fairly unanimous for us has been whenever there's been bleeding, um, whenever Emma's thyroid hormone has um, or uh, her sort of levels with her thyroid issues have been unduly high, that that has unfortunately led to a loss. Um, and it's a pattern that has recurred often enough for us to kind of be able to call it more than we thought. Um, but in the interim, the prison trial had come out. So Tommy's had produced this um, this research that kind of said, if you experience bleeding there and you've had more than three miscarriages, there is a place for vaginal progesterone to hopefully help you keep the pregnancy. But from the moment, so I had this huge triathlon come in. It was a uh, 70.3. So in other words, I was meant to buy swimming, cycling and running cover 70.3 miles in a day. Is um, that a half iron man? And yeah. 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 Um, so, oh, please, you, you've been out doing it. <laughs> oh, well, I, yeah, I know about that. <laughs> I haven't done one, but yeah. yeah. Oh, you so should. They're so much. <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> so I'd, um, I'd, so the week before the race, and Emma starts bleeding, and I kind of said to her, look, should we try the whole pedestrian thing? And the old familiar black crowd, um, was hovering heavy overhead and I just kind of I accepted where she was and I accepted that she'd come to the conclusion that this pregnancy was going to end um and so we left it um I'm not going to sit here and tell you what the right or wrong decision was um it was just our decision and we thought that the pregnancy was over because the bleeding had stopped um and we, so the race was a good distance from the house. It was on the Isle of Arran. So we'd made the trip up. We were meant to be camping, this and the other. It was um, torrential rain. I mean, absolutely biblical rain um, the whole weekend. Um, we're staying in this campsite. Um, we then um, had... I had to register for the race or something or another. And in the process of registering for the race, managed to um, aquaplane off the side of a hill and crash my car into a wall. Gosh. <laughs> and I wrote, yeah. So I wrote my car off. Uh, and thankfully, there were some good people around. So the police actually took us the 22 miles it took to get us back to our campsite. Um, and the recovery guys were pretty good about letting me store stuff in the wrecked car and this and that and the other. Um, a couple of the, uh, certainly one family that was in the campsite just completely took pity on us um, and let us hang out in their tent so that the kids could play because they had young children as well. The dad was doing the same race as me or 
the race that I should have mm-hmm. been doing, um, which I then didn't do. And then to add insult to injury, um, that was the night that we had the miscarriage and there was just this little baby in our in our hands. And it was just one of those perfect storm situations. You just think, if I was a screenwriter, <laughs> I would be licking my lips because I've absolutely played a belter here. Um, I mean, you've, you've had the lead up to it, the kind of, you know, inauspicious start, the dramatic storm, the car crash, yeah. the lightning yeah. and the rain. Yeah, very dramatic. Yeah. Yeah, literally everything we owned was either in the rain or in a heap. Uh, and I, I laugh about it because there was there, there is now currently no other emotion to have. <laughs> but at the time, I was abject. Uh, but what was kind of mm, in a roundabout way encouraging to me was that I was abject. I wasn't absent. I was hurt. I wasn't numb. And for the first time, I actually was able to, even in the moment, even in the midst of it on the day, was able to look at it and go, everything I thought I knew about myself and this situation has been shown to be not really true. Because I thought I was, you know, one of these guys who just kind of would shrug it off, not really talk about it, let it go past me, and that be it. But the the arc of the story was that I came out of that and I became someone who who could who could grieve, who could see the situation for what it was and be like, My God, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's okay that I think it's terrible and it's okay that I hurt and it's okay to even say it and to feel it and to share it. Um, and there was just something really abnormally glorious about the suffering. I don't wish these emotions on anyone ever, ever, ever. But if you are going to go through trauma, the fact that you can hurt means that it mattered. And that was, for me, the the kind of turning of the wheel because now I wasn't this person who was more concerned with the appearance of who I was in amongst the situation. I could just be in it. I could experience it. I could live it. I, could, I couldn't accept it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was out of order if I'm (laughs) frankly honest Uh, but at the same time I was big enough and brave enough to accept that I was vulnerable and that that is an incredible journey you've shared with us actually which has spanned so many years and so so much trauma and so many losses but I feel like talking to you I feel like you've you've kind of discovered who you are really. And it's been a real journey of discovery for you through that, through that pain. Sometimes we're, we're shaped by our successes, but I think more often we're shaped by our failures. Um, The only difference is, is that 
that shaping isn't a passive process, or it doesn't have to be, at least. Uh, I've I've wrestled with this for getting on for 10 years. You know, our first miscarriage was in 2011. Um, and if I'm truthful, I've never seen the point in it uh, as to why this lesson should come this way. But since it has, I'm going to make the most of it. I'd like to come on now just to talk about your fundraising for Tommies and the cycling and endurance challenges you've completed, which are which are pretty impressive. So when did you first decide you wanted to raise money for Tommies? And I think one of the, the first big challenges you did was your five for five challenge. So could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the five for five was brilliant. Um, that was that was the making of me. Because um, to give you a quick rundown of it, what I planned to do, um, it wasn't quite the way it worked out, but what I planned to do was to commemorate each one of the miscarriages by um, cycling up to a ski centre. Um, so there are five um, UK ski centres in Scotland and they kind of sit in a ring around um, sort of central to northern Scotland. Um, and so the the goal was to start from the west coast to work my way inland and north and over the course of three days on my own unsupported kind of check that ring all the way around and make it back home um, so the overall ride should have been um, just under 600 kilometers in three days it should have been um, in terms of vertical um, elevation, the equivalent of going from sea level to Everest base. It's camp. big, and Scotland, it was, Scotland's hilly. I mean, uh, I think we all know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This was this was the real deal. I'll have to spare the stories of what happened in the hills on those three days for another day because I, I could quite easily talk for another two or three hours just on that trip by itself. But needless to say, I left my house clinically depressed. Uh, I came back euphoric um and the euphoria isn't for the reasons that you might imagine it was because i faced my fears I, I, you can't spend that kind of time with yourself in every possible emotional state i mean to give you a, to give you a, a, a small heads up um and this is a slightly silly story so forgive me if i sound a little trivial but um about four hours into the ride um I realized that for the last seven months, I've been telling people that, that I was the wrong age. <laughs> <laughs> That's how much time Were I you spent. Were you overestimating or underestimating? <laughs> oh, no, completely underestimating. I'd missed a birthday by like seven months. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I remember kind of calling my wife from somewhere near um, Perth, which was by that point kind of, you know, 60, 70 miles into day one. And I, I called her up and I said, Babe, did you know that I'm actually 33? <laughs> <laughs> she was like, yeah. She was like, yeah, you've been 30. I, I, I said, no, I've been telling everyone I'm 32 for um, a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so so that's just to, to demonstrate the level of psychology that was going on out there. Uh, but like I said, I'll spare the, the rest of the story. Needless to say, it was a monumental um moment in my life um life-changing I think is is the only way I can really describe it I, I 
I had loose plans. I had these little cards that were supposed to show me the directions and what have you. Nothing prepares you for what I experienced out there. Um, and I, 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 I learned a lot about humility. Um, I learned a lot about not falling into the trap of self-pity because someone's always got it worse than you. Like every time I thought, you know, I'm having a terrible day. This is a horrible experience. I don't know why I'm doing this to myself. Um, I'd come across someone who had it factorially worse than me. And I just kind of have to go, right, well, okay. Suck it up, granted, it up. Your legs hurt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cheer up. Come on, princess. <laughs> um, and again, going back to this whole idea of, of the glory and suffering, I remember um, for anyone who's ever driven or cycled up um, the Lech, which is a particular kind of hill sequence, I just remember thinking, like, who dreamt up this road? <laughs> I was kind of cycling. So the way it starts off, it's pan flat. You turn this corner and literally tarmac looks at you. The, it, it starts off as a, as a one in five gradient. Um, and it lurches and it reels all over the place. You get almost to the maximum height of the hill. And then it plunges you almost to sea level inside the hill for you oh. to do it all over again, but slightly longer. So <laughs> and I remember kind of cracking up on this thing, like absolutely laughing out loud. But I say laughing, I couldn't really breathe. But, <laughs> but kind of smirking at myself, thinking this is this is insane. Like if I actually make it home, I'm going to be happy. <laughs> this is the craziest thing I've ever done. I think, yeah, I think there's definitely something about endurance events and I I haven't done sort of cycling endurance events but I've done um so I've done an ultramarathon and I, I walked a kind of double ultramarathon over two days a couple of years ago and sort of exactly what you say kind of resonates because I I mean I found it so hard the second day it was boiling hot you know I had blisters which I've never had before literally I've never had a blister until that, that walk and yeah I got into a checkpoint and I was thinking, can I, you know, can I keep going? And there were people sat next to me with literally their feet in tatters, like completely in tatters. And they got up and they put the boots back on and they hobbled out. And I thought, you know what? You've got no excuses. And you can, it's strange, isn't it? Because you can always push yourself that little bit further, even when you think you can't go any further you you just keep putting yeah. one foot in front of the other or you just keep turning that pad those pedals and slowly you just make it a little bit further along that road absolutely absolutely i mean so ultras still scare me uh, <laughs> so credit to you for doing not one but two because I, I, oh, that's my lot though now i don't have to do it again <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah I, I don't know why i keep doing them uh, <laughs> there must be something broken inside of me but yeah no so i yeah credit to you <laughs> i i i could not think of anything more horrifying than an ultra right now but yeah i i take the point that it's uh, i think i'd possibly i think the same about your cycling challenges <laughs> yeah yeah I can, I can see why you might say that cause, um it turns out that i can now read my saddle without looking at it if you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so going back to the story of tommy so um in amongst all the loss 
losses. The bit that I haven't really said is that um, a friend of mine from university um, had a stillbirth that I think coincided with either our third or our fourth, probably third loss, um, almost to the day. Um, And, you know, the wonder that social media and whatever, he got in touch with me to say, look, I'm planning on doing this huge bike ride in South Wales. It's like an organized thing, not any of the nonsense that I've been up to myself. Um, and he wanted donations. And I said, well, look, I, I'm on a very menial kind of budget at the moment in this research job, but I can't give you money, but I can give you a pair of wheels and I can see what I can do. Um, and so he'd gone out and cycled 200 kilometers in the day or something absolutely ludicrous like that. Um, I was toast at kind of a hundred kilometers. <laughs> I was absolutely done. <laughs> but I think in the end, there was something like 30 of us that went and did this thing. And, um, you know, we were part of the peloton for his, his, um, daughter that was, um, I believe she was born alive, but didn't live for very long. And I, I've never even found out the full ins and outs of what that story was. Um, and he was kind of the person that really helped me switch on the light bulb and and kind of go, you know, just because you're suffering doesn't mean it has to be about you. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd seen him kind of raise all this money for Sands as a thank you for what they've done for him and his wife in their loss. And I was like, well, okay, Sands isn't the right charity for me because Sands is for babies. Um, and not that my our losses weren't babies it's just they weren't of the same ilk they don't fall into the same bracket Um, and then I kind of figured well who is out there that's kind of championing all pregnancy complications because I was like on the one hand there's what I do for a job and and, and I see it from the other side the kind of preterm deliveries the preeclampsia the you know, the the list is not worth talking about in some ways in this kind of context. But all the all the trappings of when things don't quite go to plan in pregnancy. And then on the other hand, I've got this personal story of miscarriage and whatever. And at the time, Tommy's were um, starting to recruit. Um, oh, sorry, not recruit. Recruit's the wrong word. They were starting to um, develop a miscarriage centre. Um, and they were asking for units who felt that they could meet the standard of becoming a Tommy Centre and that sort of thing. And I thought, you know, that would be that would really be something quite cool to to be a part of. I, I'm not clever enough to be an academic doctor, sadly. I've tried many times. I've failed so many times. But um, what I can do is I can be a voice. I can... I can start a discussion. I can talk about what I know, what I see, and what I've experienced, both as a dad and as a as a practicing clinician. Um, and I can try to do something about this. Not because it's you know I, I'm not out there designing drugs and you know all the kind of important stuff, but maybe part of the important stuff is actually talking about it uh, 
about talking about grief, talking about loss, talking about miscarriage, talking about pregnancy complications, and never really not talking about it. Um, <laughs> so anyone who knows me well enough uh, will realize that this is, I made the choice that this was going to be my life's passion, that helping people through a process that hasn't always been good to me or good to us was something that I could genuinely get behind as a as a as a as a mission. Mm. And Tommy's is an amazing, amazing charity um, in terms of what they do, both in terms of their sort of research and what they're trying to do to prevent pregnancy loss and also supporting people, supporting couples through pregnancy after loss. And they yeah, they they really are amazing. And I think you have a new challenge coming up, although I don't I know if the, do. the current COVID-19 pandemic, which we're currently in, and the lockdown has, I don't know, tempered your training for that. But tell us what you're planning uh, and how it's going. <laughs> yeah, so 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 in terms of what I'm aiming to do, uh, I'm aiming to do the West Highland Way in a day, um, which... For anyone who knows the West Highland Way knows that that's not really possible. It's, uh, I think the official route is 93 miles or something like that. Um, yeah, um, it, it goes from North Glasgow to um, Glen Nevis. Um, the route that was cooked up in the 1980s or something or another, and most people walk it, and when they walk it, it takes seven days. Um, there are some ultras, ultras that happen on it. Uh, so it's funny you should mention ultras because I've become aware of that. But certainly, um, I think they're usually two-day events, whereas what I'm planning to do isn't exactly the West Highland Way, but it's something of, of a similar rail and I'll probably be in sight of the West Highland Way the whole time. So what I'm planning is um, I'm calling it the run, swim, bike, hike, and it is literally what it says on the okay. tin. I'm going to run 22 miles. He says, run 22 miles um, from Glasgow to Loch Lomond, which is the largest um, inland body of water in the UK. It's not the deepest, the deepest is Loch Ness. Um, then I'm going to swim across the loch. Uh, then I'm going to get on a bike. And I'm going to cycle to Glen Nevis. And then I'm going to make it to the top of Nevis. Up to the top of Ben Nevis. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, that is... I don't know if this is possible. I, it's this a massive challenge. Um, I actually yeah. know Scotland quite well, so I do know the route that... <laughs> it's yeah. a big, in a single day as well, like 24, 24-hour period, I guess. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm saying in a day, it might be two days. Uh maybe four <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but um yeah that's the that's the intention that's amazing and it also sounds like it's a really fun way of do- I mean obviously fun in the sense that suffering is fun but a really fun challenge actually a nice way of doing it yeah I, I figure you know there's no point in doing these things unless there's a sense of adventure about it that's one thing I've learned about myself in this process I'm not good at kind of doing repeated routes of somewhere or you know, just trying to hit a particular time or pace. I'm bad at that. Um, I'm not motivated towards it. But what I can do is I can um, I can suffer in a beautiful place, and I can 
suffer in a in a dynamic place. And so that's kind of the goal is to um it's just keep moving really. Um knowing that you know, the last five miscarriages had a ski centre each. This miscarriage will have the privilege of the whole of the West Highland Way instead. Yeah. So, and the UK's highest mountain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The mountain's gonna be the little kicker. I'm not sure if that's definitely gonna happen yet. I'm very dubious that after all those things that I'll actually be in any fit state to do a kind of four to six hour hike. But I think, you know, even doing the West Highland Way, I think, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing, amazing achievement. And I think you're fundraising for this as well. And I wish you the best of luck in that challenge. And I hope, I wish you luck that it will go ahead. I'm sure you don't need the luck to complete it. You'll um, do whatever you can to put whatever you can into it to make it happen. Um, but we are about out of time. So could you just finish by telling people where they can connect with you online and how they can find out more about the challenge and support your fundraising? Absolutely. So um, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, and I've got a giving page. So I'm on www.virginmoneygiving.com slash Carl. I got there first. Sorry, <laughs> um, And then, um, oh, and I've got a blog as well. So my blog is www.ambitionendurance.wordpress.com. Um, I tend to post a lot more about kind of the mental side of what I do physically. Um, and my Twitter handle is ambition to endure with the number two. Um, that tends to be a lot of the kind of biohacking, all the kind of weird things I look up. Um, and then Instagram is the underscore ambitious underscore endurance. And that's all the pretty pictures. <laughs> Which we love. <laughs> I, will include, oh, I, do. I will include all those links in the show notes so, so people can find you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Carl, and sharing your experiences you so and your journey. Thank you having me. No problem. It's been great chatting Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com.